All right. Um, so, kind of give you an outline of where we've been and where we're going. Um, when we when we talked to uh, or when we talked last time, we basically got up through Luther's life where he wrote the 95 theses. Those theses uh, being posted to the door at Wittenberg were not um, meant by Luther to be revolutionary, um, and honestly, they weren't seen as being revolutionary. Um, they didn't even cause much of a stir, uh, a stir around Wittenberg. Um, they, they were met simply as an academic debate, but a couple of students got a hold of them. Um, they were written in Latin, so other than professors, no one else could read them anyway. Um, but once some students got a hold of them, they translated them to German and then sent them directly to the printers. And by this time, the printing press wasn't wholly new, but it had been around for almost 100 years. Um, and so they quickly started printing out German editions of these things. And uh, within two months of that, um, he first posted it at basically Halloween on um, uh, uh, 1517. January of 1518 was when they got translated and published, and then by the time March of 1518 came around, there was, uh, you, you probably couldn't find many people in Germany uh, who could read German who hadn't read the 95 Theses. Um, and so this is going to cause friction with him in the church, and that's basically what we're going to talk about today, is how how the 95 Theses really caused this disruption in the church. Um, we're going to spend the vast majority of our time on those things because that's a, a good portion of uh, sort of the start of the Reformation, the history of the Reformation. Um, next week, we'll start talking more about his theology, um, which uh, the keystone of that is justification by faith. Um, but we'll also talk about um, some of the changes that he made, uh, you know, changing from Roman Catholicism more to what Scripture says. Um, you know, as somebody who was a monk and a priest, uh, he will eventually marry uh, Catherine, um, which is a major change in, in how people perceived um, the way in which spiritual authorities in the church were, were supposed to carry themselves, um, dealing with some stuff on the Lord's Supper and, and some, just some personal stuff with him. I will say that once we get through the, the diets that we're going to talk about today, these imperial sort of courtroom scenes, uh, we're going to drop a lot of the day-to-day the -day history. When we talk about Luther next week, we're going to just talk in generality about the things that he said and believed. The main reason for this is because um, the particular history that we're going to cover is going to get too fragmented and detailed to be of any help to us. So Germany wasn't a nation at this time. It was part of the Holy Roman Empire. The Germanic peoples were peoples, and they were governed by different princes in different areas. And what's going to happen is you're going to have different leagues forming. The Diet of Worms is going to be upheld and then rescinded and then upheld and then rescinded several times. Um, the first part of the, the Protestant Reformation is just all over the board. It's fluctuating here and there. Some, some areas are going to accept the Reformation um, fully and completely, the whole nine yards. Others are going to be um, firmly Catholic, and you're going to start having maps drawn and, and areas conflicting with other areas. So it just becomes too complicated to handle in that way. Um, so we'll just kind of generally cover his life before we move on to um, Zwingli and, and what's going on in um, Switzerland at the same time. Um, so again, indulgences, basically the idea behind indulgences was uh, this, this man named Tetzel was, was walking around saying, don't you love your parents who are dead and crying out to you from purgatory? Why are we suffering while you're holding on to all of our money that we saved for you? Um, you, should, you should give that money to the Pope and he will, he will free us from purgatory. Um, and Luther wrote the 95 Theses um, honestly to, as, I think if you read it, um, it, it was either written in tongue-in-cheek saying, hey, the Pope wouldn't do this, although he is doing it, or he honestly thought that the Pope wouldn't be involved in this kind of stuff, trying to save. And, and part of it is, it's really hard for us priests and monks to talk to the laity in good terms about the Pope when the Pope's doing stuff like this. So it was clearly not meant to be a warning shot to the Pope and Luther saying, hey, we're going to splinter off if you don't do something. It, it was just meant to instigate some discussion. Well, it starts taking off and um, he upsets a lot of people by it. Um, when he finds out that it's, it's taking off, he does a couple of things uh, right away. One, um, he doesn't try to stop it, but instead uh, 
specifically to a man named Albrecht, which we'll come back to. He was um, named Albrecht von Brandenburg. Um, he was a gentleman who had two Episcopal sees. So a see is um, basically an area that you are the, the man over as far as uh, the church goes. And he already had two of those, and he was vying for a third, which was going to be the main archbishopry in Germany of Mons. And so um, he was a very important churchman in the area, and he was the main churchman in the area where Luther lived. And so Luther pens this. It's now going all over the place. So what he does is he decides that um, it's best if he expands these a little bit. He's going to write uh, more uh, expansively to try and explain what he meant by the theses, what he was trying to get at with the theses. And he, he writes what is actually a very kind cover letter to Albrecht. Um, Albrecht looks at him, he, he reads the cover letter, and he sends it on to the Pope. Um, we're going to come back to Albrecht because he's got a, a role to play in this uh, in a little bit, but he sends it on to the Pope. Now, well, we'll just talk about Albrecht now. Albrecht is in a bit of a pickle. Um, the indulgences may be the reason why, I don't know that this is the reason why, but Luther sends him the cover letter and everything because Albrecht is up to his neck in debt. Um, so, again, the, the three main things we talked about as being um, kind of known issues in the Catholic Church at the time, other than the moral issues that had to do with how the church was being run, were the issues of uh, simony, where you would pay to get appointed to places, pluralism, where you would be the man of many places, so you wouldn't just have one C, you would have two C's, but you can't really be a bishop of two different areas. You, you really just need to have one area, but they were buying more than one area. Um, and then absenteeism. Well, Albrecht had not only purchased the second C, but he was trying to purchase this archbishopry of Mons, which would have been the chief one in Germany. And he owed the Pope for these positions uh, something around 10,000 ducats. Um, that works out to be somewhere between $1.5 and $2 million in today's money. Um, so uh, not cheap. And so the reason why the indulgences started in the first place was because Albrecht wrote the Pope and he said, listen, here's my plan. I owe you a bunch of money. You need money for St. Peter's. Here's what's going to happen. Let me sell some indulgences. And by doing that, we'll raise some money for you. And the Pope said, okay, you can raise the money that you owe me through that. But half of the money that Tetzel takes in is coming straight to me for the building of St. Peter's. So the Pope was double dipping. He was getting half of the cut, and then he was going to get whatever Albrecht made paid back to him. So this is a really good deal for the Pope, but it's a really good deal for Albrecht as well. And as Luther says later, both men have their fingers in the pie, and therefore he can't trust either one of them. Both of them have reasons to want to silence uh, silence Luther and have very, very little reason, um, being worldly men as they were, to allow Luther to go on. So Leo hears about these things. It's unclear how much attention Leo pays to any of it at all. Um, he thinks it's a big deal. It's obviously starting to carry weight in Germany, uh, but Leo basically just says, okay, he's an Augustinian monk, and so he reaches out to the Augustinian order and he says, you guys got to corral your monk here, get him under control. And um, so Luther is called to Heidelberg to stand before his order. And he is really terrified of this because he thinks that the Pope has called him there and he thinks that they're going to try him and convict him as a heretic and that he is going to be burned. He honestly thinks he's going to his death. And he shows up and they call the council together and the Augustinian friars look at him and basically say, hey, this is pretty good. Uh, we we kind of we kind of dig this. Um, they were in agreement with a lot of it, and the younger friars were especially kind of jazzed about the whole thing. And so Luther really thought he was going to get in trouble. He got a big attaboy, um, and so at that time he he basically came out free, and, and the Augustinians weren't doing anything. And part of the, the reason why the Augustinians didn't do anything to uh, Luther was also because Tetzel was a Dominican. Um, he was a Dominican friar, and so they viewed it as something of a rivalry between the Dominicans and the Augustinians as well, and the Augustinians were certainly not going to chastise a, an Augustinian monk for something that a Dominican was doing. Um, Leo badly um, understood what was going on here. Actually, if, if without God's sovereignty in that particular situation, if Leo had acted quicker, Luther might not have been able to, whether he was killed or otherwise, might not have been able to, to push the, the Reformation as far as he does. 
But Luther, um, or excuse me, uh, Leo underestimates the, um, the problem. He underestimates the resolve of the Augustinians. He underestimates the, the amount of popularity that the views that Luther's putting forward has. Um, and so he, he can't do much about it. So basically what happens is um, Luther has not just upset the Pope, but he's also upset the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, the Holy Roman Emperor was tightly connected to the Pope at the time. His name was Emperor Maximilian. Um, and Max did not care for this sort of upstart monk causing trouble in his empire. And so he said, we're going to have to deal with this. Um, the Pope had initially called Luther to come all the way to Rome, uh, but a man who we, we need to, um, who is basically Luther's hero, Luther would have died several times over if not for him, Frederick the, the Wise. Um, Frederick intercedes and says, no, 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 that, let's not do that. Let's have it, let's have this, instead of him going to Rome, which he wouldn't have been able to protect him, he said, let us do it in Augsburg, which was closer in Germany. Um, and Frederick gets from the emperor a safe passage for Luther, uh, which basically means you can't burn him if he goes before a council. You, you've got to convene and you've got to do this justly. Um, everyone agrees on this. Uh, the Pope sends Cardinal Cajetan to this particular imperial diet at Augsburg. Um, th these diets are basically like um, a meeting of, of parliament, sort of. So there's, um, there's the nobles of the German princes and things like that, the barons, the nobles, the princes, come together along with the emperor, and they've got a lot of stuff to discuss with the pope. Um, the Turks are starting to press the, the eastern border of the Holy Roman Empire. There's a lot of other things going on, and so Cajetan is there to, to handle all these other issues, and Luther just kind of gets tacked on to this. And Cajetan seems to be an incredibly bright man, but he probably had a lot going on, did not read much of Luther, didn't really even know what Luther was saying or doing. Perhaps it, it was, um, I shouldn't say he didn't know what he was doing. Uh, he, he probably had grasp on that, but all he was there to do was to do two things. One, do you recant? And two, if you, if you don't recant, I, I'm supposed to arrest you, was basically how it was going to go for Cajetan. Um, Luther thought he was being brought in to talk about the theses, and so uh, Luther shows up uh, with safe passage and over three days is, is going back and forth with Cajetan, who simply does not want to debate him. He's not prepared to debate him. He wasn't told he was going to debate him. He wants nothing to do with this. Um, at several points, it basically just uh, transforms into a, a bunch of seventh graders yelling at one another. Uh, Luther, uh, who you might know of, has a very short fuse, um, is yelling at Cardinal Cajetan. Cardinal Cajetan is yelling at him. Not much is happening. Basically, they, they break off and they say, uh, this, isn't going, and Ka this isn't going to go anywhere. Cajetan is, is perfectly um, ready to take him as a prisoner down to Rome. Um, Frederick understands this. So Frederick knows what's going on behind the scenes. Um, Frederick, it should be said, at this point, uh, this is, um, I believe, uh, before 1518, or uh, somewhere in 1518, Frederick knows that Luther is not going to get a fair trial in Rome. Um, what he's being taken to Rome for is to be burned. And Frederick isn't, at this point, even convinced that Luther is right. But what he is convinced of is that Luther needs to have a fair trial. He's, he's honestly fine if Luther gets the stake, but he's got to get the stake going through the right mechanism. And he doesn't feel like justice has been done because no one has actually talked to Luther about what he's done wrong. And in the background of all of this is what we talked about with, with um, Huss. So if you remember Huss, Huss was a Czechoslovakian about a, a hundred years before this who, who took some ideas from Wycliffe and was basically saying, hey, the Pope can err, and when the Pope does wrong, he deserves to be, be shipped out. He, we, he, he's not, this isn't a lifetime appointment, but when he does wrong, he should be treated as though he did wrong. He should be shipped out. And eventually they, they called him in falsely, saying, We're, we want to talk about these issues. They called him in and basically just lied to him and burned him. Um, so this is in the background of Frederick's mind with what's going on with Luther, and he doesn't want anything to do with that. So he's protecting Luther. He's, he gets him away from Augsburg, um, takes him, and gives him safe travel back to Wittenberg where he can protect him a little bit more. Um, and then something important happens. So again, 
Leo uh, not being quick to act in the first place. Augsburg doesn't, the Augustinians don't do what he wants. Augsburg doesn't go the way he wants. And then Maximilian happens to die. And Maximilian's death is uh, a really good thing for Luther because what ends up happening is there's two major kings in Europe at this time once Maximilian dies. There's the king of France, which is Francis I. Pretty easy to remember. You wonder how France didn't have a Francis until... The 1500s is a little weird, but um, Francis I of France, and you have Charles I of Spain. Um, both of them are powerful guys, and the Pope is the one who crowns the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And so he's looking at both of these powerful guys who are already the kings of France and Spain, and he wants nothing to do with them to controlling like 80% of Europe. And so he is trying to find another candidate, and the candidate that he lands on happens to be Frederick the Wise. So he wants Frederick to become the counselor, and he sends this gentleman uh, by the name of von Militz. Sorry, so in 1519, he sends von Militz. I should have just made it up. You guys don't care. Uh, von Stinkenstein. So he sends this guy to, to Luther. Basically, what he's doing is he's, he's sending him to Frederick, and because the Pope knows that part of Frederick's problem is the way that Luther is going to be treated. Von Militz not only goes to Frederick with a golden rose, which is just uh, stupid, but he goes to him with a golden rose, and he takes one to Luther as well, basically saying, hey, we're going to be at peace. And, and when Von Militz sits down and talks with Luther, he says, we just need to kind of shut this down for a time. And Luther says, okay, here's the deal. I won't make any more waves. I will do nothing to promote this. I will do nothing to... to uh, um, cause any more problems so long as my opponents keep quiet as well. And von Millet says, we can agree on that. So the church will be quiet about it if you're quiet about it and we will, you know, those things can only get buried for so long, but nevertheless, they're, they're just asking for a time of peace. So everyone agrees. We'll just kind of call it, even Stephen right now will walk away. In 1519, though, um, there's a man in the University of Ingolstadt uh, who's named Johann Eck. Johann Eck uh, is, is probably the angriest man in Europe about what Luther is doing. He is furious about it. Um, don't know exactly what his background is or why. I, I know what he's a scholar of, but um, I don't know why this set him off quite the way that it did. But he's just not having it. Um, and he hears about this peace treaty that's made between Luther and von Militz, and he can't because his whole position is the church is right and Luther is wrong and the church can't be wrong. So he can't go against what the church has just done, right? So he's stuck. So he's got to figure out a way around it. And the way around it is to challenge somebody to a debate. But that somebody is related to Luther, is close to Luther, but isn't Luther himself. And somebody is Andreas Rudolf Karlstadt. Um, Karlstadt uh, was a good theologian in his own right. He was more radical than Luther. So Luther, what you're going to find when we talk about his theology um, next week, he has a lot of ideas, but he doesn't quite carry them to their natural end. So um, as Baptists, this is why I always say that Baptists are the, the, the full end of the Reformation, because we, we then are the ones who truly believe that regenerate church membership is necessary, that um, if you're justified by faith, that you actually have to have faith to be in the covenant, that infant baptism is out. And once infant baptism is out, the connection of the, the church and the state is, is somewhat separated, so on and on and on. Um, Luther doesn't quite reach those. At some level, Karlstadt is pressing these things further. And so Eck says, I want to debate you on your theology. And Karlstadt says, sure. And then Eck sends him the list of questions, the list of topics that are going to be debated and it's nothing but Luther, right? It's, it's basically all, not only about Luther, but about the 95 Theses, about selling of indulgences, about the Pope's authority. Like, it's, it's just straight. And Luther looks at it, and he's like, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, you're, this isn't done in good faith. You're not, you're not debating Karlstadt's theology. What you're doing is debating me. And so <clears throat> uh, Luther, wasn't, Luther wasn't wrong in that. And so he says, well, I'm going to show up, and we're going to have a debate. Um, it was clear at the time that Luther was better than Eck at understanding theology and understanding scripture. There was, there, if, if you paid attention to the debate, um, no one left the debate. It's, it, this is kind of like um, how to win points and lose a debate. 
So Luther won all the points. He, he knew theology better. He was able to handle scripture better. But X specialty was in um, canon law, which is the law of how the church is meant to work, basically the, the, the rules and regulations that the church has set down for how the Catholic church handles things, and medieval theology. And so Eck knows that he, I think he, he is wise enough to know, or at least he learned at the, at the, the debate itself, that he's not going to be able to beat Luther arguing scripture. So he takes him to canon law, and he takes him to medieval theology as often and as, as quickly as possible. And eventually, what he gets out of Luther is what he wanted. He pins Luther down, not physically, but theologically. He pins him down, and he says, was the council that condemned Huss wrong? Because Huss was convinced by Scripture that he was right. Huss was convinced by Scripture that the church was wrong, was the council wrong to condemn him? And Luther, at this point in time, had made enough statements where that particular conclusion was just not something that he could escape from. And so Luther said, yeah, the, the council was wrong. Huss should not have been burned as a heretic. And that, that was pretty much, you know, at that point in time, Eck just kind of like said, okay, I don't care what happens now. That's all I wanted. Because you can't side against... So in Roman Catholic theology, you've got basically what they call a three-legged stool of authority. You've got scripture, you've got the church's authority found in the pope, and the church's authority found in councils. So you remember when we went through the conciliary, con, not conciliary, um, the um, council movement uh, to try and reform some of the church's actions, the councils actually thought that they might be in more authority than the popes, and the popes were, thought that they might be in more authority than the councils, but no one disagreed. Councils had authority. They spoke for the church just like the Pope spoke for the church. Um, so he, he sides against an authority of the church. He sides with a heretic. That's excommunication stuff right there. And so by the time Luther finishes with this debate, Eck has already probably in his head started working on how he's going to get him excommunicated. Um, that excommunication comes down pretty quickly in a bull. Uh, so again, bulls written by popes are the the stamps that they're put on. It's called a papal bull. And the name of this papal bull was Esurge Domine, which means arise, O Lord. This is where the Pope calls um, Luther a bull in the vineyard of the Lord, trampling down all the good that he has done. Um, it's quoted from Scripture. Basically what the, you can find it online, it's pretty easy to find. Um, basically what it is is 41 things that Luther says primarily taken from the 95 Theses um, that Eck himself seems to have played the largest role and I don't even know how much the Pope actually wrote. Eck was kind of writing it for him um, which basically say, you said this, this is false, you need to recant it. Okay? So once the Pope writes the excommunication, it's not immediate, it has 60 days before Luther has to respond to it. So the Pope writes this and it's got to make its way up from Italy. As it's making its way up from Italy, you know, there's no FedEx or anything like that. They're not emailing it to him um, about his car warranty or anything like that. It's just coming straight, straight to him by horse. And part of what it asks for is for, for the works of Luther to be burned. Okay, so they're saying, listen, he's a heretic. All of his works should be burned, and, and he's got 60 days to respond to this. Well, as it's making its way north, what you find is that certain regions are like, um, sure, let's burn them. And so they start to burn them. And other regions read it and they say, instead of doing that, why don't we burn his enemies' works? And so they got a bunch of work by Eck and other people and started burning those. So they were, there were already sides being taken for the church and against the church. And again, when, when you have regions now standing against the Pope, this is not a small thing. This is clearly the beginning of the Reformation uh, taking root in people. It gets to Luther. Uh, Luther meekly um, holds it up and burns it, um, clearly signifying that the excommunication is mutual. Um, he, he wants nothing to do with this pope anymore, and the pope wants nothing to do with him. Um, the, the pope then decides, well, we need to handle this, and the only way that he's going to be able to handle it now is by turning it over to the secular authorities because he doesn't have the power to kill. The secular authorities do. And so he says, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to call another diet, and we're going we're gonna to work through this. And so this is where the Diet of Worms comes from. So um, by this time, Frederick was not appointed to be emperor. Other things had happened, and eventually Charles and the Pope worked something out. So Charles I of Spain now becomes Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, and he is going to sit over this diet, okay? 
and <clears throat> Luther's brought in, um, and uh, this is the major thing that's going on, the major thing that's discussed at this particular diet. His writings are out on the table, um, and the diet basically begins by saying, hey, Luther, this is the deal. This is why we brought you here. We got two questions for you. Question one, are these your writings? And question two, like, do you recant? And so Luther looks at the writings. The, the, it's not the first day of the, the diet. The diet's been going on for a couple of weeks because they've been discussing other things. But this was kind of the main event. Um, when Luther comes in, he says, well, I can answer the first question right away. These are my writings. They're not all of my writings, but they're, they're a good portion of my writings. And, and so far as, as no one has slipped anything insidious into them, I, I, I suspect that, that I, can, I can put my hand on this and say that they're my writings. So he does give this like little um, caveat because he, he thinks that these people are really evil people. And he says that maybe, maybe they said some, they put something into my writings that I just didn't say. So he gives this caveat, like, unless one of my enemies slid something in here that I didn't write, it looks like these are all my writings. When it comes to the second bit, Luther does something strange. He actually asks for a day to think about it. Now, what we would expect is that Luther being the, you know, the, the Pope calling him a bull isn't quite wrong. Um, being the bull that he is, you, you'd expect that he would just get up and, and basically give the emperor a piece of his mind. Uh, but Luther is still not shaken from the authority of God and the fear that he has of being judged. It's not, it's not so much that he fears damnation now, but he recognizes quite clearly that even if the pope doesn't have authority, when it comes to secular matters, God has given the emperor authority, and the emperor can kill him. Um, and so he, he knows that he might be facing death. And so he says, before I answer the second bit, just give me a little bit of time. And the emperor says, okay, well, I'll give you a little bit of time. Um, but, but tomorrow you've, you've got to answer these. Um, and so uh, Luther comes back and he, this, I'm, I'm going to read from part of the speech that he, um, that he gives. I'm not going to read all of it. It's decently long, but um, here's part of what Luther has to say. Um, as for the second question, so he answers the first question, these are all mine. As for the second question, I am now about to reply to it, and I must first entreat your majesty and your highness to deign to consider that I have composed writings on very different subjects. In some, I've discussed faith and good works and a spirit at once so pure, clear, and Christian that even my adversaries themselves, far from finding anything to censure, confess that these writings are profitable and deserve to be perused by devout persons. The Pope's bull, violent as it is, acknowledges this, and he does actually acknowledge it. What then should I be doing if I were now to retract these writings? Wretched man, I alone of all living men should be abandoning truths approved by the unanimous vote of friends and enemies and should be opposing doctrines that the whole world glorifies and confessing. So he says, we need to be, in other words, we need to be a little bit more particular here than saying, do I recant? Because there are things in here that I just can't recant. Like, you're putting me in a position where if I don't recant, I get burned. If I recant, then I'm, I'm saying I don't believe in things that ought to get me burned, right? So this is a catch-22, and Luther's saying this is unfair, in other words. You, you can't make me just wholesale recant these things because I wrote things that are true, and if I recant them, that I deserve to be burned as a heretic. So I have composed, secondly, certain works against the papacy, wherein I have attacked such as by false doctrines, irregular lives, and scandalous examples, afflict the Christian world, and ruin the bodies of souls and men. And is this not confirmed by the grief of all who fear God? Is it not manifest that the laws of human doctrines of the popes entangle, vex, and distress the consciences of the faithful, while crying and endless extortion of Rome engulf the property and wealth of Christendom, and more particularly of this illustrious nation? Yet it is a perpetual statute that the laws and doctrines of the Pope be held erroneous and reprobate when they are contrary to the gospel and the opinions of the church fathers. So he's saying, yeah, I wrote against, I wrote against the Pope, but everyone in here knows. Like, this wasn't a secret. Everyone in this room knows. Well, not just this room, but the room at the diet. Everyone in that room knows what kind of lives the Popes live. Not all of them, but a good portion of them. You know 
that they have harmed people. You know that they have lived irregular lives, meaning that they've lived incredibly sinfully. You know that they are, they are building their empire out of the back of your people. And Charles did know this. He, he was in conflict with the Pope a good many times as the, um, as the king of Spain and now the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He's going to butt heads with the Pope. So he knows very well what Luther is saying is true. Um, if I were to revoke what I have written on the subject, what should I do but strengthen this tyranny, tyranny and open a wider door so that many and flagrant, to so many flagrant and, um, sorry, and open a wider door to so many and flagrant impieties. Bearing down all resistance with fresh fury, we should behold these proud men swell, foam, and rage more than ever. So he says, I'm not going to do it. Uh, in the third and last place, I have written some books against private individuals who had undertaken to defend the tyranny of Rome by destroying the faith. I freely confess that I may have attacked such persons with more violence than was consistent with my profession as an ecclesiastic. I do not think of myself as a saint, but neither can I retract these books, because I should, by doing so, sanction the impieties of my opponents, and they would thence take occasion to crush God's people with still more cruelty. Okay, so he says, I... I may have erred in being a little bit harsh, right? So if Luther admitting that is not admitting much, right? So if you've ever read anything by Luther, him saying I might have been a bit violent is like the understatement of the century, okay? It's like the guy at the hot dog eating contest on the floor saying I had a couple of hot dogs today, right? He, you know, you ate 55 in 15 minutes, and this is kind of what Luther writes like. So for Luther to say I might have been a little bit over the top is really saying something Yet, nevertheless, he comes back and says this. So he goes on and says more stuff. And at some point in time, Charles V cuts him off and he says, listen, I, I don't need this stuff. I, I, I just need to know what you're, like you're giving me reasons. I don't care about the reasons. I just need your answer. So he gets cut off by the emperor and he responds, but he responds not in Latin, which is important. <clears throat> he responds in German, um, which was unheard of in a diet at that time. Uh, he re- other people might have, but most of the people who are going to be before a diet like this would have been speaking in Latin. They would have been educated men. Um, Luther doesn't respond in Latin. He here responds in German so that everyone in the court can understand and so his words can be published. And he says this, Since your most serene majesty and highness require of me a clear, simple, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council, because it is clear they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Now, that here I stand note is, like, everyone loves it. It's unlikely that he ever said it, to be truthful. Um, that's what I've heard from a number of, every time you, you read it online now, or every time you find it in a history book, everyone's like, he probably didn't say it. So, he probably didn't say it. So, there's no here I stand, but there is the, him, most of that, up until he says that, I can't stand against my conscience. The whole idea here is, if Scripture is my final authority, I can't rely on a pope to tell me if I'm right or wrong, and I can't rely on councils to tell me if I'm right or wrong, because they've clearly clashed. If, if you look part of what he's written before, is if you look back in history at how popes have written about a subject and councils have talked about a subject, and sometimes popes clash with the councils, sometimes popes clash with other popes, and so his whole point is, I don't know who I'm supposed to trust. In the end, I'm captivated by the word of God. So I won't recant a thing. And I understand that I need God's help in this, but I'm not going to recant anything unless you can prove to me that I'm wrong. Okay, so that brings us to your homework and the statement of Eck. And so Eck says, Martin, um, he he refers to him as Martin, which I find um, interesting. Um, He says, Martin, listen, this is what every heretic has always done. Heretics aren't using things that aren't scripture. The worst heretics always use scripture, but we have relied on the church to direct us, to help us to understand how to interpret scripture because they're using scripture. They're just using it wrong. And so, you know, 
the question that I pose to you then is, given what X says here about authority, um, what do we say? Because he's right, by the way. Not only is he right that the heretics used Scripture to back their positions, but you could even go further than he goes and say, not only did the heretics use Scripture to back their positions, but the church fathers used church tradition to support their views. So one of the things that they did, and I didn't mention this the other day, if you go read Athanasius and you go read Augustine, and, and not to a lesser extent the Cappadocian fathers and others, when they wrote supporting the Nicene Creed, when they wrote um, supporting the Trinity uh, as we know it, they did so basically saying the church has always kind of said this, that we're not inventing anything new. This is what the church has said. Um, and so the, the question has to be asked, where is Eck wrong? So Eck is saying we need the church to tell us what is right in Scripture, how to rightly understand Scripture, how to rightly interpret Scripture. So what would you say to that? What's the answer that you would give? Sharon? Right. As You didn't, you didn't point that directly at me, but just in general, the category, right? We are as individuals that can read Scripture. Right, right. So, Eck would respond to that, I think, with this. One, you're not Jesus. Um, so when Jesus does that, he can say, well, yeah, but Jesus, Jesus does always know how to interpret Scripture. You don't, that's the point. You need something to help you. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I, I know. And then, and then Eck, the Holy, the Holy Spirit being given to you as an individual, I think Eck would say the same thing, right? So, um, yes, the Holy Spirit does that, but the Holy Spirit works through the church, right? And the, if the Holy Spirit has worked through the church, then we ought to recognize what the Holy Spirit has done in appointing men to certain positions within the church and thereby recognizing the Pope's authority. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm simply telling you what I think Eck would do as a point of contention. So, I think that you're right. Although I would say that um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't so quickly jettison church history. I think that it is an authority and quite a large one over us. So, I wouldn't quite do that, but nevertheless. Any, anyone else over the past week thinking about this? Or did you forget about it at Sunday at 10.30 and then just kind of go about your very business? Which is fine. Guys, Sharon, get an A for your homework. The rest of you, I'm very disappointed. Uh, Dave Schubert actually did write me back. Um, so they, they've got a, a wedding to be at this weekend or something like that. Um, and what Schubert basically wrote back what David basically said. Um, he was um, quoting another scholar, um, basically saying, listen, um, when you read the popes, like this is part of the problem of interpretation. Um, and we, we come to this when we have creeds, right? So the Nicene Creed, uh, as we talked about even on, on Sunday when we did the Apostles' Creed and we talked about what the, the, uh, the wording of the Apostles' Creed said, and he descended into hell or he descended into Hades. Not only do we need to translate that word into English and find out how to use it, but then we need to, tra- we need to figure out what did the church fathers mean when they said that, right? It's not, just, it's not clear and evident what they meant, right? Did it mean that he descended to the fiery torments of hell? Did it mean that he just descended to the dead? Did it mean that he descended bodily to the dead? What, what, does it, what does it mean? And so one of the arguments is, well, even the popes need to be interpreted, right? And so how do we know what the popes meant before? 
And eventually, you, you always end up in the circular thing, the circular nature of interpretation where you have to interpret what they've interpreted and how are you going to interpret it. And so eventually, it all becomes down to your own conscience anyway, in, in one shape or form. What are you convinced by? Um, I think that Eck has a good point. Um, and Luther seems to, I don't think that he does completely, because he, he will later argue that he is the inheritor of the Augustinian tradition. Um, he's going he's gonna to write, um, we'll talk about this next week, but he's going to write against somebody named Erasmus that because you are saved by faith alone, that faith is given to you by God. He's going to go back to Augustine and he's going to say predestination is a thing. So predestination has been lost for a long time within the church um, because they lost the idea of faith being a gift that God gives to people. But when Luther recaptures that idea, he goes back to Augustine and he finds it and he says, I'm following Augustine here. So Luther is not opposed to using church history. I think the problem for Eck is this. Church history and and the church does indeed have authority. It has authority over every single person in this room. But the church's authority is always found in the past. It's never found in the present. So the problem with Eck and the problem with Cajetan and the problem with the Pope was that they were thinking that they had authority then to be able to call Luther to grounds and to attention. But the church has authority only as it exists in history. That is, it is the momentum of the church, the teaching of the church that has gone before them that stands as the authority, not somebody standing over you in authority today, okay? So the authority is always a past authority. To give you an example, um, we disagree with people on things like uh, homosexuality and, and uh, even Christians uh, in who, who believe that, um, you know, people can live out their sexuality as they so please, and they make arguments from Scripture. They're so-called Christians, but they make arguments from Scripture saying that this is okay. And we can even, we can even lighten it quite a bit from that and say, um, we think that Scripture is really clear when it comes to female pastors. Um, but nevertheless, there are arguments out there to understand these key passages of Scripture differently, which isn't an, an understanding— Women, female pastors is not an issue of heresy versus non-heresy, so I'm not making that comparison, but I'm, I am saying this is something akin to the, the very thing that was happening in the early church where the, this was over an interpretation of Scripture, okay? So why is it that we don't pay as much attention to those particular arguments, right? So there are arguments out there about female um, pastors, female elders, and, and their ability to lead the church. Why is it that, that I just... Um, don't think that we even need to pay much attention to that. Well, I don't think we need to pay much attention to it because in 2,000 years of church history, closing in on it anyway, this just wasn't ever a thing. Like, there was never a movement to exclude women because there was never a movement to include women in pastorates. It just, it was never a thing. There was never a woman bishop. There was never a woman elder that we find in Scripture or really in church history. Now, there are women that held a great deal of sway, um, you know, we, we can go back and think of um, Gregory of Nyssa's sister. Um, I can't think of her name right off. The, it's not Marion, but it's, it's something like that. Um, who, who was incredibly influential in his life and in the life of his brother, um, Basil the Great. Um, so there are women who hold influence, but they never hold official positions, right? It's just not what they do. And so when it comes to that particular way of interpreting we can rely on the, the authority of the church over 2,000 years to say the past of the church holds authority over that interpretation. And to go against 2,000 years of church authority, you, you've, Scripture has to really be shown to be clear on that. And in this case, there's just no reason to buy into it. The same thing goes for homosexuality. They can make any of the, the case they want to make that Scripture actually doesn't mean what you think it means here, there, and elsewhere, and, and we just kind of have to throw up our hands and be like, dude, 2,000 years. These are people who spoke Greek fluently, who read the New Testament, who knew the, the, the apostles and, and had these things passed down to them. It was never accepted. It was never approved. And it was approved in the surrounding culture never within the church. And so when we've got that history, that's what I mean by the church has authority, but only in the past. The past practices and past beliefs of the church have authority. When it comes to what Luther is saying, the church has no authority to tell him that he is wrong 
outside of showing him that he is wrong from Scripture, because the, the church has not long held that you can do these kinds of things, or, or, long, or always held that, that these popes had authority to grant people, you know, exit from purgatory or exit from um, hell simply by the popes say so. Um, so I think that he's not wrong. We don't want to jettison the idea that the church does hold authority, because it's, it, it becomes one of those things where you now have to figure out everyone stands on tradition somehow. No one comes to Scripture and starts remaking it on their own, right? So you have these fundamentalist guys who say, hey, we're going to have no creed but the Bible, okay? But when they're hiring a new pastor, right, they expect that new pastor to believe what? at least generally, what they already believe. So they expect that the tradition of what they believe as a church is going to be passed down. They still believe in tradition. Their tradition is only 50 years old instead of being 2,000 years old. Well, that's not a great tradition. That's, we've got 2,000 years of tradition. We stand on that. And so um, the answer that I would give to Eck is precisely that. Your authority is nil because you stand before me today. The authority of the fathers who have gone before me is where my authority lies. And none of them had the right to condemn, and the church has never condemned anybody because they opposed indulgences, okay? And another side note to all of this is everything that we've talked about so far, we make justification into the thing of the Reformation. None of this has even touched on justification yet. He was excommunicated. Exerge Domine was written by the Pope in 1519, uh, 1518, um, excommunicating Luther on the basis of the 95 Theses and not on the basis of any of the justification by faith stuff. Before he wrote the 95 Theses, Luther actually wrote something called the 97 Theses. The 97 Theses were about justification. And he wanted it debated. He, he came to that conclusion in 1515, long before he wrote on indulgences in 1517. No one really cared. It, it wasn't hotly debated he wanted to debate it in the church. He wanted, or not in the church, in, in Wittenberg, and people just didn't seem to care very much, right? We make it the center of what the Reformation was, and it became the theological issue that tested the waters, but the real issue is, who has authority? Where does authority lie? And Luther's response is the response of the Reformation. Um, it's not justification by faith. The response is sola scriptura, we believe that Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And if we can't be proven wrong, then you should not turn your back on what you believe Scripture to say. It's not good for you to do so. That doesn't mean that you're right. It doesn't mean that you're right. But it also, again, we're coming back to Baptist beliefs, means that, that you need to have the Holy Spirit work in you. You need to have the Holy Spirit lead you. You have to have the Holy Spirit uh, making you a new heart in order to buy into Christianity in the first place. Babies don't get that just by din of being born. They're not regenerate because they're born to believing parents or anything like that. So um, anyway, uh, next week we'll talk about some theological implications of what um, uh, Luther said, including talking about justification by faith and, um, and the Lord's Supper and the real presence of the Lord and um, anti-Semitism and probably some other fun things. So uh, any, any questions? Yes. I'm not sure how to ask my question, but I'm thinking about the authority of the pastors. Um, practically, I'm not disagreeing with you, but just practically trying to get my head around the understanding. Yeah. There's probably not history or books written to fill this room, and probably more. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it makes sense what you said on the one hand, but practically speaking, all I can really do is trust my pastor that he's telling me the right thing. That's, that's all you need. That's all you need, Mark. Um, no, the, it's a good question. So my, my answer to that would be under the sovereignty of God, um, where the church, it, it's sort of like 
we use the word the perspicacity of Scripture, which means the clarity of Scripture. Scripture isn't clear on everything. Um, certain things are said in it that we scratch our heads over and we don't know. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions the baptism of the dead. Um, why do you baptize the dead? We have no idea what he's getting at there. Uh, we don't find the church doing that later. We just don't know what he's getting at. Um, so it doesn't, it's not clear on everything, but what it is clear about are the most important things. So the more important it is, the clearer it is. The less clear it is, the less important it is. Church history works kind of the same way. What was the church clearest about? You have to have faith in Jesus Christ. It is clearest about the Trinity. It is clearest about Christology. It, it made these things crystal clear, and the church has always hung on to those things. Now, as you go down the list, things become a little bit less clear in church history. So if you're looking at, well, well what did the church think about you know, Matthew 16 and the, the keys of the kingdom, which come up in, in Luther and talking to the Pope and things like that? Well, the church didn't make a huge deal out of that. So is there 2,000 years of church history on what the church actually believed? No, but what that tells us is that the weight of history indicates in some form or fashion the weight of the doctrine, right? And if you can't pinpoint to exactly what the church has believed over a large period of time, then it's, it's unlikely that it's that important of a doctrine. And honestly, justification, by faith, we need to, we need to be very clear. We think that Luther is right when he says justification by faith. However, you're not saved believing in justification by faith. You're saved by justification by faith in believing in Jesus Christ. And there's a real powerful difference between those two things. And so it is not a, um, it's a first priority in the sense that it gets at what the atonement is, but because the fathers weren't that clear on it, like there is not a huge amount of history backing up the idea of what justification is. You could, you could make a case that, that the early church fathers said you needed to believe and buy into that belief and that Jesus would save you and that those are the most important things. Um, and, and that seems to be what, what Luther is getting at. He's just kind of fine-tuning it a bit. But my, so my answer to you is, if, if you can't find a particular way that Scripture has been handled on this certain thing, then it's probably not terribly important. And, and the other thing I would say is that we have not just had histories written, but we have had compilations of histories written. And so you can go to a historian, and they can point you at other histories that compile what the church has said on these various things at various times, and you can get pretty clear answers on them. So you can do, you can go back through the major interpreters of Scripture and the major men who have done the work over a passage or over an idea, and, and you can find people who have summarized that and, and take that as sort of, this is what the most important, and if it's scattered, again, I would say that it's probably not that terribly important, but it's a really good question. A longer answer than you probably thought. So. <laughs> then a long answer? You guys know me well. The kids are going long today, too, so any other questions? Quick. Okay, let's pray and we can be dismissed. Father God, thank you for uh, this time and thank you for Martin Luther. Thank you for his faithful response. Um, we pray that many would come to realize the goodness of what. He has spoken um, that it is Scripture that captivates us. It is Scripture that we are beholden to. Um, we are not beholden to any other men and their interpretation. We, are, um, we should stand in line with where the church has spoken over time, um, but no one in particular gets to stand over us and demand a response from us on these things. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would give us um, wisdom in the Spirit, um, that we would rightly handle the word of truth, and that by doing so we would show ourselves to be approved. We ask for your, your grace to be over us, to lead us when we are in error, and help us to be loving and kind in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.